Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make Make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, February 21st, 2014. All right. I got to make some decisions here. Because of the short week, there's a lot of stuff I've wanted to get to, but haven't gotten to. And I can't... I don't think I'm going to get to it all today. That's all right. We'll work it out. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there's no shortage of crazy, bizarre things being said about God out there, and, well, we take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and take a look at what's going on. Now, if you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for a while, you know that one of the things I do is that uh, I try to uh, make it so that every episode of Fighting for the Faith has a theme to it. There's a theological or apologetic theme that I'm trying to uh, get to. And um, and unless I say that there isn't, there's no theme. So this is one of those programs where yeah, it's we're going to be all over the map today, and um, so what we're going to do is we're going to start off with a um, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the End Times update. We'll switch gears from there, and then we'll do a Cindy Jacobs uh, update, you know, from her God Knows television program. And no, I'm not trying to be blasphemous. That's actually the name of her program, God Knows. And what's it about? <laughs> yeah, um, what's what the title says? God knows. I don't. I don't know what that program is about, but um, and then uh, what we'll do is we'll switch gears coming out of the uh, the break, and uh, and you know we'll figure out how to do the breaks today. And then I have an emergent update, kind of a kind of a dual emergent church update. Uh, one from Brian Zond, uh, the uh, who was made famous here at Fighting for the Faith for his Gospel of the Chairs uh, presentation that we. Uh, we critiqued not that long ago, which he got from an Eastern Orthodox guy, which is actually fascinating. Um, he has a, um, a, a an interesting blog post at his um, website called 
my problem with the Bible. And it's actually kind of fascinating because uh, the presenting problem that he puts out there is one that I think a lot of people, when you know they approach the Scriptures, it's a valid point that he brings up as to how do we handle God's Word. Now, uh, and, uh, and what do we do with the fact that it seems to be written from the point of view of those who are oppressed? Those who are the downtrodden, the people who are enslaved, uh, not the movers and shakers of the imperial world, if you would. Uh, this is a valid observation on the part of emergent liberals, but they kind of miss the point uh, because, um, you know, they reject, if you would, uh, the vicarious penal substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. And as a result of it, they, they don't know how to connect the different dots and how to properly make sense of Scripture because they don't have the right center. And so what they're seeing in type and shadow uh, uh, regarding, you know, oppression, poverty, and, and slavery and things like that, uh, they mistake for the, uh, the actual substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll talk about that. And then I might be able to get to one more um, you know, uh, portion of the emergent update. It just kind of depends on our time. And then in hour number two, we're going to head back to Thailand, and we're going to listen to another good sermon by uh, uh, the missionary there, Corey Klein. And uh, it, I think it's on the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19, Starting at verse 13, well, I'll give you the details when it actually comes time for the sermon. And I'm only going to sit in a little bit on this one um, for this reason, is is that uh, Corey Klein has uh, proven himself uh, in the sermon that we reviewed from him in the past, that he is a, a very skilled handler of God's Word. When he preaches a biblical text, he preaches Christ. He rightly distinguishes law and gospel uh, in it. And uh, sin and grace, he preaches repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And in the sermon, he talks about two different religions, um, the religion of works versus the religion of grace. And uh, this, he just does a very skillful job at it. But I might sit in for just a portion of it to kind of point out you know, in in similar fashion, how uh, past you know, it, it, there's a similar thing in the text that is uh, that he does that Pastor Charmley did, um, and I'll I'll point that out. Uh, you know, it, probably in the sermon, and then you know, and not interrupt him because you know, it's, it, again, you know, if you make it onto fighting for the faith as somebody who has shown that you are a skilled handler of God's word, um, oftentimes the sermons just speak for themselves. And when I do sit in on the good sermons, it's because I want to highlight particular things that the pastor's doing that are particularly worth noting. So uh, that's what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And uh, we'll, I'll explain what we're going to do with William Tapley here in a minute. But since we are doing a William Tapley, 30 Goal of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times update that requires me to do well this doom and gloom coming soon listen to 30 eagles tune doom and gloom god is telling us the end is coming soon very soon see signs up in the sun and stars and moon doom and gloom very soon rapture comes at night or noon doom and gloom very soon if you're ready you will meet the bride and groom that's uh, William Tapley. He's the only guy, I think, that uh, actually has his own update music now uh, that he's written and performed here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. So what we're going to be listening to is the uh, latest uh, video from uh, William Tapley. The name of it is Bible Prophecy 2014, Enoch and Elijah. 
Enoch and Elijah. And I want to point something out here that I think is actually indicative of false prophets. Okay. Um, now I'll give you a little bit of my history here. Um, you know, from, I don't really talk about it that much, but uh, if you've listened for any amount of time, then you know that uh, my wife and I spent some time in the New Apostolic Reformation. At the time, it was called the Latter Rain Movement, and uh, and and unfortunately, the group that we got caught up in was a cult. I mean, in the, in the truest sense, but God delivered us out of that. And um, and one of the things I kind of cut my teeth learning theology and apologetics by doing counter cult ministry. And uh, the first group that I learned how to actually apologetically do counter cult ministry against was the Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you know the Jehovah's Witnesses story, um, back in the um, early part of the 20th century, the Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah, it's the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, they had a really bad habit of predicting the return of Jesus with only to have Jesus not return. And uh, you're thinking, well, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure they made these prophecies. I actually still have the documentation. Uh, I think that, you know, I have old copies of the Watchtower and photocopies of these prophecies sitting in a file somewhere in my office. But, uh, you know, I have to pull that out sometime and kind of dust that off. But um, you know, but here's the deal is that they, had, they made a series of these prophecies in the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society magazine. And um, that, obviously they didn't come true because I don't know if you've noticed Jesus hasn't returned. Um, yeah, that's right. We're still here. And um, and so what happened is, is that as a result of the, the continued false prophecies, they eventually came up with a very clever way of dealing with the fact that they had not successfully predicted the end of the world. And that was is that they claimed that Jesus invisibly returned. He didn't visibly return. He invisibly returned. And if I remember the details right, I think it was in the 1920s, and apparently Jesus invisibly returned um, somewhere in San Diego. <laughs> and, and so the, the, the doctrine kind of changed, you know, in, in, in the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses religion. That, uh, you know, Jesus had invisibly returned. That was the fulfillment of the prophecy then. And then this is where the doctrine of the only 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses will actually be saved kind of thing. Um, So of the, you know, when Jesus returned somewhere in the 1920s, I think it was, um, the Jehovah's Witnesses that were living at that time, 144,000 of them would be make up the 144,000 from the book of Revelation, and they would be alive uh, when Jesus visibly returned sometime during their lifetime. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses actually for many, many decades kept track of who the 144,000 were, and they got older and older and older and started dropping like flies and dying and um you know and obviously i think now i they've all died and and um, once again the jehovah's witnesses are guilty of a false prophecy now all of that's kind of like to make this point one of the things that false prophets do is they make prophecies that don't happen and at some point they have to deal with the fact that they think they're hearing from god um, and but the reality never shows up in any kind of actual tangible evidence, i.e., uh, fulfilled prophecies. Now William Tapley is suffering from this same problem. He is uh, chronically and habitually making false prophecies, and the thing he won't question 
is whether or not he's a true prophet or not. In his mind, that just is axiomatic that he's a true prophet. He's really hearing from God. Therefore, how do you then explain uh, the fact that his your, his track record isn't even close to 100%? In fact, it's miserable. Um, well, the, the answer is this, okay? And this is one of the solutions that false prophets come up with is that they spiritualize um, their former prophecies in order to basically make them take them from the category of false prophecy and sneak them into the category of true prophecy by changing the details, spiritualizing them in some sense. Therefore, they are no longer false prophecies, but true prophecies, but they were true prophecies in a spiritual sense, not an actual physical sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of the delusions of false prophets, and this is a time-honored tradition on the part of false prophets and William Tapley being one of them. So as we listen to this Bible Prophecy 2014 Enoch and Elijah um, video uh, by William Tapley, pay attention to the technique, because in here he's thinking out loud about what to do about the fact that he predicted the the return of Enoch and Elijah. He predicted World War Three, and uh, you know this years ago, and they didn't turn out as he expected them. In other words, he prophesied falsely. Solution? Well, the solution should be: Listen, I'm a false prophet. I'm guilty of false prophecy. I've been brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my false prophecies, take down all of my, he's, you know, I, he should take down all of his videos and things like that. That's what he should be doing. He should confess that he's a false prophet, take down his videos and find something productive to do with his time, not making these videos and continue to put out false prophecies. But the thing about false prophets is they don't ever question whether or not they're really a true prophet or false prophet. It goes without saying that they must be true. So they come up with clever ways of getting around the fact that that, that, that thorny issue that they don't actually bat 100%, which is what Scripture requires. So here's William Tapley, and uh, pay attention, like I said, to the technique. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of the End Times. This will be part eight in my series on the possible fulfillments of Bible prophecy in this new year of 2014. And I want to specifically talk about the return of Enoch and Elijah. I believe they have already returned, but when will they manifest themselves in the flesh? One of the reasons we know that the two witnesses must be Enoch and Elijah is because they are the only two individuals in the entire Bible who never died. Scripture says that Enoch was translated to heaven and the great prophet Elijah went to heaven on a fiery chariot. Now, I'm going to pause right there. Okay, I'm going to pause right there and make a point. And that's this. This this concept that the final two prophets that are talked about in the book of Revelation, them being Enoch and Elijah, that is a speculation that goes way back in church history. This is not some new things that he's concocted. There's, there's a long time-honored tradition of speculating as to whether or not the last two final prophets are actually Enoch and Elijah. 
And for the very reason that he said, because they actually are the only two human beings who haven't physically died. Okay. Um, and so the idea being, well, it's appointed, you know, man to live, it wants to live in, you know, and then die and then face the judgment. These two men haven't died yet. So maybe, just maybe they're, in, you know, they're the, uh, the false, the two prophets, not the false part, the two prophets uh, that are talked about in the book of Revelation. That's how the speculation goes. Okay. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, those types of speculations are, well, speculations. These are not doctrines or, you know, are articles of faith that Christians are to believe. Um, although the logic seems tight, um, at the same time, it's still what? Speculation. Well, we continue. Uh, it, now, again, focus on the fact that he's made predictions regarding Enoch and Elijah that haven't come true. He's going to talk about that here shortly. The chariot of Israel. Now, I predicted four years ago, right here on YouTube. <laughs> Whew. Right here on YouTube, four years ago, he predicted. I mean, it sounds so official when he puts it that way, doesn't it? That several extremely important prophetic events would occur in the fall of 2010 to start the seven years of tribulation. Yeah, and how did that go? It didn't go well at all. And among them was World War Three and the return of Enoch and Elijah. The- and I think we've covered both of those aspects in the archives of Fighting for the Faith. You can find those here. And, in fact, when I remember at the time he was talking about World War III, and I made the point that how come it is that when I open up my laptop and look at the latest you know, news headlines, no one's talking about the different troop movements and strategies being employed in order to win uh, World War III? You know, who, who was on whose side? You know, which are the Axis and Allied powers? You know, where were the major battles uh, being fought? Where are they being fought? You know, regarding World War III, I kind of noted the fact that uh, World War III has turned out to be a non-event. In fact, um, no one's writing the history of World War III yet. Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed that. But so what does this make William Tapley? It's plain and simple. According to this, the, uh, the guidelines set out in the book of Deuteronomy regarding true and false prophets, he is a false prophet. But rather than confess the, the fact that this is the case and that he's a sinner as a result of it. Well, actually, he's a sinner, uh, but this is one of the th- sins that he's committed as a sinner that he needs to repent and be forgiven of. Um, rather than repent and be forgiven for his false prophecies, um, he d- doesn't um, see that as that. So what do you do? You spiritualize it. Two witnesses of the end times. However, I was just as surprised as most other people and how undramatic these events turned out to be. Mm-hmm. So undramatic that no one even noted them. In fact, ever since then, I have been expecting Enoch and Elijah to reveal themselves publicly at any time. However, I have now come to the conclusion that will never happen. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that make you a false prophet? Now, they will manifest themselves in a secret fashion. Mm-hmm. In a secret fashion. Right. See, now now we're... This is the escape clause. See, it didn't pan out the way I expected, the way I said it was going to happen, right here on YouTube, of all places. Um, and uh, so, um, what does that mean? Well, 
it, it it's not what I expected, but uh, they they will manifest themselves in a secret manner. It's it's super super de duper secret. In fact, it's so super de duper you have to have not only top secret clearance in order to actually have a secret appearance from Enoch and Elijah. You need to have super de duper top secret clearance in order for this to happen in a spiritual sense. And they have been ever since the fall of 2010. So let's look and see. What scripture says Enoch and Elijah will do? Uh huh. Boy, he got off that topic really quick, didn't he? Yeah, he <laughs> changed the subject quick before somebody notices. Yeah, unfortunately, William, I noticed. In chapter 11, verse 6 of the book of Revelation, they have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. And we have seen a lot of very serious droughts right now in California. Uh, yeah, see, that's that's proof that uh, Enoch and Elijah are sitting around secretly somewhere, you know, shutting the heavens so that it doesn't rain in California. Hmm. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. And ever since the fall of 2010... When Enoch and Elijah returned, as I had predicted, we have been getting many, many examples of lakes, streams, ponds, even rain, turning to a blood-red color. Mm-hmm. Uh, really? So when they returned, as you predicted, on YouTube, um, you know, since then, you know, even though you can't physically see Enoch and Elijah, in they they're only working secretively and spiritually. Uh, there's been headlines about water turning into blood, so that's proof that they're they're secretly hiding out somewhere. Mm-hmm. In fulfillment of the prophecy you gave back in 2010, how convenient! And to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So they're secretly holed up in a bunker somewhere, striking the earth with plagues. Now, I believe we have seen that in all these fish, bird, and animal die-offs. And yet we have not seen Enoch and Elijah return in the flesh. Which is what you predicted. And they must return in the flesh if they are going to die and fulfill the Bible requirement that it is appointed once for man to die. One of the most amazing proofs that Enoch and Elijah have indeed returned. Uh huh. It makes me wonder if, as a kid, he uh, believed in the great pumpkin and hung out in pumpkin patches, the sincere ones, you know? Is when Elijah proclaimed, I am here. And if you remember, He said that in that Australian fire tornado back on (laughs) 9-11. What? (laughs) Elijah said, I am here in an Australian fire tornado. Really? 2012. Please remember that date, by the way. That is very significant. That was the 11th anniversary of the terror attacks in New York City. Yes, and we all know that 11 is a very evil number. And that fire tornado also occurred when the Benghazi attack occurred on our embassy in Libya, and four Americans were killed. That fire tornado not only revealed that the prophet Elijah is here, but it was also a warning to America 
specifically. Now, the sad part is, is that he sees all these warnings and these really, really obscure omens that he interprets all the time. But he can't even read the very clear warnings of Scripture regarding false prophets, which is what he is. So the reason I played that particular one is to highlight the technique. Did you see how the technique works? The technique's pretty simple. You uh, you claim to be a prophet, but you're not really a prophet. Uh, but you think you're hearing from God, but you're not really hearing from God. So you issue a prophecy regarding something that's supposed to happen. And lo and behold, because you're not really a prophet, the prophecy that you issued doesn't come to pass. Okay, rather than repent, uh, what you do is you find weird ways of reinterpreting the events and think, saying, I, you know what I, my problem was there? I thought they were returned visibly rather than secretly. So then you claim some secret spiritual return or you know the, the uh, interpretation of your prophecy so that it gets moved out of the false prophecy column and you can secretly smuggle it into the true prophecy column. And then you look for obscure... Uh, evidence that you think supports the fact that the secret to, the secret um, in spiritual interpretation of your prophecy is the right one, and that obscure evidence somehow proves uh-huh what he needs to do is repent and be forgiven because he 's a false prophet and he 's guilty of blasphemy and and proclaiming prophecy in the name of God that didn 't come to pass. But Christ even bled for those sins. And there's forgiveness, even for William Tapley. And pray that God opens his eyes and that he repents because this, that he's, the stuff that he's engaged in, well, it's just flat-out blasphemous is what it is. Forbidden by Scripture. He's a false prophet. And this is what false prophets do. All right. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We have an update from Cindy Jacobs and the God Knows television program, as well as an emergent update regarding the Bible. It's kind of fascinating. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? Tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. 
And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they too could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus... Uh, uh. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop, and, uh, well, we're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio... Very well, I'll give them a try. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, 
listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your false prophets. Which is what should be happening. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank you again for your support uh we cannot do what we are doing here without it all right moving along we have a cindy jacobs update so we gotta do this chief man what do you want to do tonight the same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. The pinky and the brain, yes, pinky and the brain. The twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. They're pinky, they're pinky and the brain, 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 brain. brain. <laughs> All right, time for our uh, Cindy Jacobs New Apostolic Reformation update from the um, television show named God Knows. <laughs> I still can't get over that name. Oh, man. It's, it's one of those weird, cruel ironies, if you would. Okay, so what we're going to be listening to is um, episode two of uh, The Lifestyle of the Prophet. As Cindy and Mike Jacobs interview James Gall of the Patricia King Gang... Um, and uh, his prophetic dreams and visions and stuff like that, and you know, to which you should be saying, it, really, God's the one who gave you this stuff. Hmm, yeah. God must be a complete nut job then, you know, or maybe you're not really a prophet. That's, you know, which, you know, which is it? You know, God doesn't seem to be non-lucid. He seems to be very lucid, uh, very logical, too. And, um just full of all kinds of wisdom. If you read the Proverbs, God doesn't really come off as somebody who's kind of, you know, <clears throat> deficient in the mental department, if you know what I mean. But uh, those people who claim to be getting direct visions from God, uh, their their messages, you know, wh- whoever's behind them um, seems to be lacking particular lucidity, if you know what I mean. So without any further ado, here's uh, Cindy Jacobs introducing um, uh, James Gall, And uh, we'll just listen in on the conversation for a little bit, and I'm sure you will find it quite educational. Here we go. Oh, we're just having the most fun on the set here with our good friend James Gall. We'd be having fun whether you were joining us or not, but we're so happy that you're joining us because James is so great to have you with us. Thank you. Cindy, tell him a little about yeah, James. Yeah, welcome to the party. Okay, James Gall <laughs> is uh, the president of Encounters Network. He has written 
multiple books. How many books have you written? Uh, have 32. You 32. Wow. Oh, dear. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, way surpassed 21 study me. guides and 32 books. That's yeah. How much do you want to bet they're not even worth the... The words aren't worth the paper they're written on. Anyway. <laughs> He's traveled to 50 nations. He is a seer. He's an... Uh, yeah, right. James Gall's a seer. Uh-huh. And he has dreams. In fact, I think he had three dreams just last night. So really, wow! How convenient. I mean, I mean, he was coming on your program, and right before they record the program, he has three dreams. Whoa! Wow! Please share the details. I'm. I can hardly wait. Oh, you never know what's going to happen when you are on the set with Prophets. So welcome to God yeah, Knows. Yeah, and Cindy, if they missed the last episode, they need to go on either GodKnows.tv. They need to get that because we're really doing a series here, and, and you don't want to miss any of it because we don't want to have to. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I haven't. <laughs> All the time going back and rehearsing what happened last episode because we want to move on there's some great things god has for today okay so god has some great things for today there's the setup okay so who who is it that we're going to hear from today oh we're going to hear directly from god okay well what is it that god wants us to hear well clear clearly it has something to do with one of the three dreams that james gall had all right so what exactly are we going to hear from god today What's going to happen on this episode? <laughs> so, what do you think, James Gall? What do I think, or what is it I know? What oh, you think? okay. Well, what do you dream, uh, even? Uh, <laughs> well, hey, you know, let me let me touch something. Okay. Um, in certain dimensions of the of prophets or or prophetic people. Oh, he sounds like a professor, doesn't he? Uh, the Day of Atonement. And the Jewish calendar is the most holy day of the year. Okay, now I'm not going to explain what all the Day of Atonement but is. But it's, anyway, and so for some prophets, they receive a lot, specifically about the new year, the new Hebrew year. Mm-hmm. Well, so this... Oh, okay, so, you know, God's, you know, he's on a completely different calendar. You know, God's on that Hebrew calendar. And so, you know, so there, when it, it comes time to, you know... Uh, Rosh Hashanah, you know, or things like that, you know, they've got, we're going to be getting new stuff or, you know, or the Day of Atonement, which is not the new year in uh, the Hebrew calendar. But okay. So, oh, well, I mean, well, that's got to be true because what he uh, makes sense, doesn't it? God's going to be speaking all kinds of stuff, you know, in tandem with the Jewish calendar. Oh, he's figured that out. Well, this, it has to be from God then. The Day of Atonement. I was given a series of dreams, and one of them was something that really touches your heart, and I hope will touch yours, and it is this. I saw a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit on university campuses. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. A new outpouring on university campi. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, really? Yeah? Okay. What, what are the details of this vision, please? I, and I saw that particularly it was a birthing canal, in a sense, a womb. That <laughs> Ew. Oh. oh, man, that just burned my brain out. Oh, man, I, <laughs> it's going to take me a week to recover from that mental image. <laughs> what? You saw what? A birthing canal, having something to do with a womb. 
uh, on college campi. Are you sure you understood it correctly? Maybe God was telling you that there's going to be a great outbreak of teen pregnancies in college campi, you know? <sighs> Southern California, and I uh, actually saw a, a friend named Sean Boltz, and, but it, he was a representative of the next generation. And what was happening is my generation was empowering the next generation. And we were saying, lead, mm. you're released. It's your time. Mm. And then there was this. Do you really think that uh, kids on college campi need James Gall and so-called prophets like him? to release the young generation into the world and, and tell them to become leaders and stuff like that. I just want to point this out. You know, I'm, I happen to be a college graduate, and I also have an advanced degree. Um, and so um, hmm. and I remember these things, okay? See, see if this sounds familiar, right? They're called graduations, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, you know, the major universities have super duper uber important, uh, you know, movers and shakers come and give the graduation, you know, commencement speeches. And and usually in those speeches, you know, you're you're going to hear these important commencement speech givers say important things to these kids and and release them into the world to become leaders and go do something with their with their um, education and stuff so i mean why do i need god the holy spirit to give you a vision of a birth canal um in a womb um regarding a releasing of college kids to go become leaders in the world when we already have graduation commencement speeches. And the nice thing about that is that generally graduation commencement speeches don't conjure up uh, mental images of wombs and birth canals. You know what I'm saying? Powering of the joining of the generations, and I saw three generations and a generation, and then, and then that third generation in the university campuses today. I saw fresh fire movements in dreams of the Holy Spirit moving in university campuses. Yeah, so you saw, saw kids freshly on fire while being released through the um, <laughs> birth canal womb thing. <sighs> You can't make this stuff up. And, of course, you, know, you, you, you hear something like this and you go, why on earth should I believe that this is an actual communication from the incredible intelligent deity who created the heavens and the earth? Why should I believe that this is actually from the real God? It's nonsensical. And in, 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 in how is this supposed to be good news or build up the body of Christ? I mean, it's just complete rubbish. This is nonsense. It's gobbledygook. So you've really just touched that recently. Yeah, that's really interesting you brought that up because just uh, 
a week ago, we uh -huh. were with Lou Engel awesome. at the Mod Auditorium in Southern, Southern California, Pasadena, which is LA area. Yep. And we were with a group called Movement 133 after Psalm 133. Okay, great. Brethren dwelling together in unity. And so what's happening is all these prayer groups have started on UCLA, USC, Biola, Pepperdine, Wonderful. all these major university yep. campuses. Yeah, Pepperdine, one of my alma maters. And they're praying together, and like uh, once a month, they drive to another campus, oh, and they'll have hours of prayer. Wow, wonderful. And and they have a conviction, uh -huh. James, that they're to minister the high schoolers. Awesome. So what's That's happening is right, prayer. exactly what you said. Well, look, it's joining of the generations, just like in James Gall's dream. The, what was in your dream. Wow. And so uh, it's fascinating. Wow. There was this one young man that lived in Northern California named uh -huh. Brian. He had a uh -huh. dream. He wow. was 21. Huh. He had a dream about... I don't need a dream. I have a Bible. 323. Something 323. Hmm. And he didn't know what that meant. So he went down and he was in L.A. Hmm. visiting. And somebody said, well, I think that's an area code here wow. in L.A. Oh. And it happened to be an area that was a Roosevelt High School, wow. large high school. Yeah. Listen to James Gall. Wow, yeah, woo, uh-huh. Los Angeles, awesome. they have a Planned Parenthood right uh -huh. on the okay. campus. So anyway, what happened was he ended up... Does this story have a point? Through mm. being invited through a Christian club, preaching, hundreds getting wow, saved on this campus great. on a regular basis. Wow. And that's not the only campus it's happening on. Well, that's the awesome. Arizona, with our friends Hal and Cheryl said, yeah, sure. the, the fire of God is awesome. falling in high schools. Wow, and great. then the high schoolers got up at the yeah, I think the media would take note of that if the fire of God was falling on a high school. It would probably make the, like, you know, it'd be like the lead story for all of the major networks. One three three meeting says we've wow. got to reach the elementary wow, schools, that's the truth. and so we see wow. this tri generational anointing. That's awesome. And uh, oh, <laughs> what a <laughs> a tri generational anointing, really? From all of these anecdotal stories that don't make any lucid sense whatsoever. Yeah. So, um. Really, these are prophets from God. Why on earth would God's church need any messages coming from these people? Because the messages that they're bringing us are complete and utter nonsense. Ah. All right, I'm going to move along here. we got an emergent church update, but uh, that requires us to do this. That's right. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Doug Paget. Now, I, delighting your ears with uh, postmodern concepts regarding music. That's what this orchestra is really all about. They've uh, separated themselves from limiting definitions of notes from modernity and are just being led by the winds of the spirit, if you would, uh, in this um, homage to um, Strauss's also sprock Zarathustra. So, listen in.
Ah, yes. Just so cutting edge. It causes blood to come pouring out of my ears every time. It's so wonderful. All right, so what we're going to be listening—I uh, can be reading to you actually an article from BrianZond.com, B-R-I-A-N-Z-A-H-N-D.com, and the name of his blog post is "My Problem with the Bible." And what you're going to hear as I read this is uh, some of the typical postmodern liberal. Uh, arguments and kind of categories as it pertains to the Bible. Now, what's fascinating about it is he confuses type and shadow with substance, and I'll explain that along the way. So Brian Zahn writes in in the article entitled My Problem with the Bible, he says, I have a problem with the Bible, and here's my problem. I'm an ancient Egyptian. I'm a comfortable Babylonian. I'm a Roman in his villa. That's my problem. See, I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth, but I'm not a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt. I'm not a conquered Judean deported to Babylon. I'm not a first century Jew living under Roman occupation. I'm a citizen of a superpower. I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire, but I want to read the Bible and I think it's talking to me. The problem, this is the problem. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that in it we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by the winners. This is true, except that in the case of the Bible, it's the opposite. This is the subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from the bottom-up perspective. Now, I'm going to pause right there. This is an acute, this is an astute observation, and he's right. The Bible is written from a bottom-up perspective. It is written from the point of those who are in slavery, the poor, the oppressed, the conquered, the occupied. That's correct. Now, here's the issue, all right? All of that being true, how then does the Bible relate to somebody who lives in a world superpower, who you know, is part of a, a culture or a nation that's conquering? The answer is simple. The Old Testament concepts of slavery, occupation, and oppression are all type and shadow to point us to the real problem. And that's that every single human being, whether they were born in Rome as part of the conquering Roman Empire, whether they were born in Babylon, whether they were born in Egypt, not as a Hebrew slave, but as the Egyptian pharaoh. Every single human being was, is poor, is oppressed, is a slave, is conquered, and is living in occupied territory, and is defeated. The question is, by whom? By other human nations? powers? No. By the devil. By Satan. Each and every one of us is born enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. We are poor, naked, oppressed, conquered, occupied, defeated. And unless you understand that about yourself, regardless of how wealthy you are by the world standards, the Bible will not make sense to you. It won't. So this theme that Brian Zahn has picked up on is absolutely true. But that's the type and shadow that points us to the reality regarding all of us, that we are 
conquered, defeated, poor, oppressed, a slave, enslaved, occupied, and defeated. But let's see if he picks up on that, okay? So here's what Brian Zahn says. He says, imagine a history of colonial America written by Cherokee Indians and African slaves. That would be a different way of telling the story, and that's why the Bible, and that's what the Bible does. It's the story of Egypt told by the slaves. True. The story of Babylon told by the exiles. Again, true. The story of Rome told by the occupied. Well, it's not exactly the story of Rome, but okay, sure, okay. But what what about those brief moments when Israel appeared to be on top? In those cases, the prophets told Israel's story from the perspective of the peasant poor as a critique of the lo- uh, royal elite, like the Amos denounced the wives of the Israelite aristocracy as the fat cows of Bashan. Yes, he did. So every story is told from a vantage point that has a bias. The bias of the Bible is from the vantage point of the underclass. But what happens if we lose sight of uh, the prophetically subversive vantage point of the Bible? What happens if those on top read themselves in the story not as imperial Egyptians, Babylonians, and Romans, but as Israelites? Uh, that's when you get bizarre, the bizarre phenomenon of the elite and the entitled using the Bible to endorse their dominance as God's will. Now notice here, this is a, this little theme here that he just picked up on, this is one of the true postmodern philosophical themes of basically using words to seize power and to oppress, okay? This is one of the major themes of postmodernism, and I would disagree with him in, on many things regarding his, his concept here, but that being the case, there have been people who have abused misread, misunderstood, and used the biblical text in the name of God to exploit other human beings. And that is not what the Bible is about. Okay, so let me continue reading. He says, this is what Roman Christi- uh, this, this is Roman Christianity after Constantine. I would disagree. That's a propaganda point by the postmodernists, but we continue. This is Christendom on crusade. Now, I would agree with him to a point on that. This is colonialists seeing America as their promised land and the native inhabitants as Canaanites to be conquered. Um, I would... Um, <clears throat> I would agree to a point, but that's not really a a right characterization of what took place in early America. Many Christians saw the Native Americans as, as the mission field of men and women and children whom Christ died for, and they preached the good news of forgiveness of sins and salvation in Jesus to the Native Americans, and that's not colonial. That's just called missionary work. But we continue. It says, this, the, this is the whole story of European colonialism. No, it's not. This is Jim Crow. Um, in a sense, yes. This is the American prosperity gospel. I would agree. This is the domestication of scripture. Okay, sure. This is making the Bible dance a jig for your own amusement. Okay, sure. I agree with that. As Jesus preached the arrival of the kingdom of God, he would frequently emphasize the revolutionary character of God's reign by saying things like, the last will be first and the first will be last. How does Jesus' first, last aphorism strike you? I don't know about you, but it makes this modern-day Roman a bit nervous. Imagine this. A powerful, charismatic figure arrives on the world scene and amasses a great following by announcing the arrival of a new arrangement of the world, where those at the bottom are to be promoted and those on the top are to have their lifestyle restructured. How do people receive this? I can imagine that the Bangladeshis... Uh, saying, when do we start? And the Americans saying, hold on now, let's not get carried away. 
Now think about Jesus announcing the arrival of God's kingdom with the proclamation of his counterintuitive beatitudes when Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How was that to be received? Well, it depends on who's hearing it. The poor Galilean peasant would hear it as good news, while the Roman in his villa would hear it with deep suspicion. And I know it's anachronism, but I can't imagine Claudius saying something like, Sounds like socialism to me. Now see, this is the missing the point thing. Jesus definitely in the Beatitudes talks about these things, but you're missing the point. Jesus was not talking about class warfare, and he wasn't talking about socialism in in the Beatitudes, okay? Here's what he says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, Matthew 3 here isn't talking about social class warfare or about the poor, the the generic poor. It's talking about the poor in spirit. And what does it mean to be poor in spirit and to mourn and to be meek? It's to confess that you are born dead in trespasses and sins, to sin, death, and the devil, that you have nothing to offer God, that you stand penniless before him and have to trust completely in his mercy. You mourn over your own sins. Rather than exalt yourself, you are meek, and you humble yourself before God. And as a result of all of that, you hunger and you thirst for righteousness. That's what Jesus is describing here in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. Penitent faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. and then bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. This isn't about the class social warfare. This isn't about social strata. And the good news is, is that then that being the case, this message in the Sermon on the Mount, this applies to everybody, rich and poor, colonialist, colonized, those who are at the top of the world's empires and those who are under the boot of world empires. All alike have good news preached to them. And the good news that those who are brought to penitent faith in Christ, who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see the difference? And see the emergence because they deny penal substitutionary atonement. Zahn does not preach that. In fact, he's very, very, very vociferous and visceral against penal substitutionary atonement. He preaches a different gospel. He sees these types and shadows in this talk about the poor and stuff like that, and he sees it as somehow God's word teaching some kind of social economic ideology. It's not. It's preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins and painting the picture for us that we are all born enslaved, all born conquered, defeated by the devil himself. And Christ is the one who comes to set us free, free from guilt, free from the power of the devil. And he does this by dying on the cross for our sins and rising again on the third day. 
All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we'll end off the week with a good sermon from Thailand. Uh-huh. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. We're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. We're going to head back to Thailand. And I'm excited about it. But let's do this right. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the, the Church of Blessing in Karat, Thailand. Corey Klein, he's a missionary there, presiding. Hmm. 
Now, the sermon we're going to be listening to is based upon the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 13 through 30. And he's going to do a very good job of teasing out the proper distinction of law and gospel and talking about the fact that there are two religions in the world. And I'm going to chime in after he's done reading the uh, gospel text, and I probably won't interrupt him again uh, and uh, you know, for the rest of the sermon, because I think he does a skillful job and it just speaks for itself. But I'll point out something that kind of is the conundrum that occurs, and it's similar to the conundrum that we had when we listened to Pastor Charmley's uh, sermon not too long ago regarding the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is uh, Corey Klein and his sermon on Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30. Here we go. Today we're going to talk about two kinds of religion. It's estimated that there are around 4,200 different religions in this world. But really, there's only two kinds of religion. There's a religion that is based on merit and works. And then there's a religion that's based on grace. You see this everywhere you go. Even here in Thailand, we have Buddhism. The key practice in Buddhism is tambu. It's earning merit. Islam has its five pillars. Five things you must do to earn favor with Allah. Judaism has the law that you are to obey. Even atheists, while they claim that there is no God, they still follow some type of moral code. But Christianity is different, or at least it should be different. Today we're going to look at a story in Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus distinguishes between these two types of religions, the religion of works and the religion of grace. But first, let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you just for bringing us here. We ask that you would fill our hearts and our minds with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, that you would convict us of our sins. That you would comfort us with your gospel message. That you would direct our, direct our eyes towards Jesus and what he did on the cross. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me today. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 13 through 30. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 30. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and, then, and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. 
and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Amen. All right, so here's the part where I'm going to just chime in for a second. This will be the only time I uh, interrupted this sermon. Uh, notice here we've <laughs> we've got a problem, and that is is that this text. I mean, you know, it just seems like it just ends on la 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 la. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, watch what Corey does here. And uh, what he's going to do is he's going to back up just a little bit and remind us of the wider context so that he can draw the distinction that this text is actually making in its fuller context. And I think he's going to do a fine job of it. So here again is Corey Klein. In today's passage, we see two different stories. Often these two stories are preached separately, which can be done. But when you look at the total flow of the gospel narrative that Matthew has written, Many times you will see that there are two different stories that he is using together to set up a dichotomy. And he's doing it here with the children and with the rich man. Here we see two kinds of religion. On the one hand, there are these children who come to Jesus offering nothing. They can give him nothing. And they have no good works that they can boast about. They just come to him and receive blessing. And Jesus says to them, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. On the other hand, we have a man who seems to have much to offer. He has wealth and he has his good deeds. But instead of offering entrance to the kingdom, we see Jesus saying this, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, one is a religion that's based on grace alone. The other is based on works alone. One is the gospel, 
The other is the law. Let's look at these two stories more closely, starting with the religion of works. Look with me again at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now this is a question that all good evangelists want to hear. Am I right? I know that's the question that I would want someone to ask me. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? I wouldn't hesitate a second. I'd start sharing about Jesus. I'd talk about his death on the cross and about the forgiveness of sins and about all the promises that we have in Jesus. This is a perfect opportunity. But Jesus doesn't do any of this, does he? He doesn't ask the man to believe in him. He doesn't talk about the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't speak about the resurrection. Why is that? Is Jesus not a good evangelist? Does he not see opportunity when it comes knocking on the door? The problem here isn't with Jesus. Rather, the problem lies with the question that is being asked. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? In his gospel, Luke calls this man a rich, young ruler. This guy has it all together. He has wealth. He has youth. Most likely he's healthy. And he has power. He's got it all. Yet still, he comes to Jesus asking this question. He wants certainty. He has already achieved success in this life. Now he wants to achieve it in the next. Also, look at how he addresses Jesus. He calls him teacher. Now, there's nothing wrong with the title teacher, except that in Matthew's gospel, he makes a distinction between people who call Jesus Lord and people who call Jesus teacher. The people who call Jesus Lord are known for having faith. Yet the people who call Jesus teacher are known for their unbelief. This young ruler doesn't recognize who Jesus is. He doesn't see Jesus as a king. He only sees him as a teacher. Let's see how Jesus responds to this man. Look at verse 17. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Not the way an evangelist would approach this, am I right? Jesus almost seems put off by the man's question. There's no mention of grace here, no mention of forgiveness of sins. Instead, Jesus is wondering why this young man is using the word good. There's only one who is good. Only God is good. You who call me teacher and not Lord, why do you ask me about what is good? If I am only a man, why do you think I know anything about being good? Only God is good. So keep the commandments if you want to be good. Then you can enter life. Do you see what Jesus is getting at here? This man desires to earn eternal life. What good deed must I do 
So Jesus points them to the good deeds. He points them, he points them to God's commands. But this isn't enough for a young man. He wants specifics. He wants a plan mapped out for him. Do this, this, and this. Then God will be so impressed by your good works that he will just have to let you in to eternal life. This young man, he's got so much control over his present situation that now he wants to take control over the next life as well. But how will Jesus answer him? Look at verses 18 and 19. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus doesn't hesitate. He goes straight to the Ten Commandments. He cites six different ones, all dealing with love of neighbor. Yet he conveniently leaves out any that have to do with love for God. What is he doing here? Why these? You see, Jesus knows this man's heart. He knows the pride that this man has. So he's slowly turning up the heat of the law on him. Jesus is looking for a broken and contrite spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why he doesn't jump into the forgiveness of sins. He's letting the law do its work first. So he asks the man, are you truly loving your neighbor? Now anybody who sees this list should immediately recognize that they don't live up to these standards. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, honor your parents, love your neighbor as yourself. Who can say that they're perfect in all these things? Yet look at how this man answers Jesus. Look at verse 20. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? All these I have kept? One of two things is going on here. Either he doesn't understand the nature of these laws, or he's a flat-out liar. Is he that confident in his own ability? Does he really think that he's going to pull this off? Yet even if he does think that, he still doesn't have the confidence that he will earn eternal life. He wants certainty. This is why he asks Jesus one more question. What do I still lack? You see, deep down, he knows he hasn't earned eternal life. He's looking for a step that he can take to earn that confidence. He wants Jesus to tell him something to do so that he can say, Look, I've done it. I have earned eternal life. Jesus knows this. So what does he do? He gives him that next step. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now comes the full strength of the law. 
You see, it isn't just about loving neighbor, but about loving God as well. Jesus knows that this man has broken the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But this man has put his own wealth ahead of God. Think about the situation. This man wants eternal life. God is standing there right in front of him, telling him to give away all that he possesses to the poor, to have treasure in heaven. Yet this rich, young ruler just can't do it. He can't. And Jesus knows that he can't. Instead, what does he do? Look at verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. His love for his things has trumped his love for God. He can't do it. He has an idol in his life that he can't let go of. His wealth and his possessions have become his God. So instead, he goes away sorrowful. But would you or I do any better? What is it that you are putting before God? What would Jesus ask you to give away or to give up? What if Jesus asked you to give up your wealth? Could you do it? What if he asked you to give up your family? Could you do that? For those of you who are looking for someone to marry, what if Jesus asked you to give up that dream? Would you do it? How about a career? Would you give up a career to follow Jesus? Or how about the habitual sins or the secret sins in your life? Do you have anger in your heart towards someone? The person might not even know it because you don't show your anger publicly, but deep down, you're bitter inside. Do you struggle to forgive? When someone sins against you, do you lash out and seek revenge? Or maybe you keep it bottled up, but passively you figure out ways to punish them. How about lust? Do you lust after the opposite sex? Do you spend late nights on the computer looking at images, trying to fill those desires? Are you a liar? Do you make promises but never keep them? Are you lazy? If there's a work set before you, are you diligent and faithful to get it done? Or do you put it off until time is running out and instead put in a half-hearted effort to get it done before the deadline? Are you proud? Do you see yourself as better than others? Do you look at your own accomplishments and think that you have achieved something great, not realizing that it is God who gives you the ability to be successful in the first place? Do you cheat? Maybe you don't play by the rules because you disagree with them or you think they're not for you. Instead, you have your own set of rules that you play by? Do you gossip? Do you speak about others behind their backs? Do you defame people when they are not around? Have I described anyone here yet? 
These are all idols we worship. We put ourselves ahead of God. You see, this rich young ruler has put his wealth ahead of God. And now he is asking the wrong question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Brothers and sisters, if you are going to try to earn salvation by your good deeds, know this. God's law is ruthless. It is a taskmaster, and it demands perfection. This isn't a scale where you weigh your good deeds against your bad deeds. Though even if it were, my guess is that your bad deeds would tip the scale. No, the law demands perfect obedience. Anything less is unacceptable. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples after this man leaves. Verses 23 and 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. To all those prosperity preachers out there, being rich isn't a blessing. Being rich makes eternal life more difficult to come by. In fact, it's practically impossible. When you're rich in this world, your dependence on on God decreases. When you're rich in this world, you tend not to see your own need for a Savior. This young ruler didn't see his need for a Savior. Instead, he thought he could save himself. How did the disciples react to this? Verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Why were they astonished? You see, to them, this rich young ruler was the ideal. To them, wealth and power didn't just come from worldly achievement, but it was a sign of God's divine favor towards a person. Think about some of their heroes. Abraham, Joseph, King David. All these guys were rich and powerful. How about the spiritual elite of their day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They kept the law to a T. They had both wealth and power. Surely they had God's favor. The disciples, what they are really asking Jesus is this. If the best of the best can't earn for themselves eternal life, then what chance do I have? Who then can be saved? Jesus' answer reminds them from whom salvation comes from. Look at verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The disciples are so focused on themselves that they fail to see where salvation truly comes from. God is the one who saves. When man tries to look inside himself for a solution, it is impossible. But when man looks outside of himself, when he looks to that God-man who's hanging on the tree, then, and only then, does salvation become possible. 
Brothers and sisters, if you are trying to earn favor with God, stop. It won't work. Instead, look to the one who earned it for you. Look to Jesus. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He rose from the dead three days later, defeating death. Look to this and nothing else. This is where our true hope lies. The rich young ruler asked, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? The question he should have asked is this, Who can give me eternal life? This man was looking to himself for the answer, but we must look outside of ourselves to find the true answer. We must look to Jesus. Let's continue on with our passage. Verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter is now comparing himself with this rich young ruler. See, we have left everything to follow you. But he doesn't quite get it yet. But Jesus is patient with those he has chosen. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is patient with his disciples. He chose them. He will also bless them. Jesus reassures them with these wonderful promises. He speaks of his new kingdom and his new world, where the twelve will rule with him. Theirs is a special honor. They will sit in judgment with Christ. And there is honor and reward for all those who have left houses or family to follow after Jesus. This is really the same promise that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler. Go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Yet they are not saved by these actions. Instead, they are saved by the work of Christ. It is Christ's work that draws them in the first place. God is faithful with his promises. When Jesus returns, we will see all these promises come to fruition. Jesus will reward the sacrifices we make in this life. But these sacrifices don't grant us entrance into the kingdom. It has to be inherited. Jesus uses the word, inherit. It has to be given to us. Only through the work of Christ can it be possible. Look at verse 30. The many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus points us back to the least of these. He points us back to the children. Again, let's compare the position this rich, young ruler had. By worldly standards, he is first 
He is on top. But the children, they have the last position on this earth. Yet they will be first in the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at our opening verses once more. Let's read about the religion of grace. Verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The children come to Jesus. They don't rely on their own works. Instead, they look to the one who can bring true blessing. It is all about faith in Christ. Faith in his work that was done on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Don't look to yourself. Look to the one who fulfilled the law for you. Look to the one who took the wrath of God upon himself. Look to the one who rose from the dead. Look to Jesus. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? There is none. What good deed did Jesus do that I may inherit eternal life? That's the real question. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us a religion of grace and not works. If you had given us a religion of works, there would be no hope for any one of us. Yet instead, you sent your son to do all the work for us. Your son, he came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law for us. Then he died on the cross for our sins. He took upon your wrath. The wrath that should have been placed on our heads was placed on his. And he suffered for us. Yeah, he was victorious three days later. He rose from the dead. Death is now defeated. And we can claim that victory with Christ. Lord, what a blessing it is to have a religion of grace. We thank you so much for it. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter and in there at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.